Just before we get into this podcast, just a quick note from Henry and I. We absolutely love hosting the Badminton Podcast, but whilst juggling full-time jobs and bearing the costs of the editing so that we can bring you higher quality episodes and regular episodes, we would love your support. And you can support us through our Patreon account where you can pledge just a little bit per month that's just going to help the Badminton Podcast keep running regularly and to keep serving your badminton needs. So, when you can, please log on to www.patreon.com slash the badminton podcast, no spaces, and pledge a small amount. It's just really going to help us to keep this podcast going. Thanks a lot. Brought to you from Melbourne, Australia, this is the Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players where we talk badminton, celebrate local heroes, interview players from all walks of life, and push you to grow as a player and a person. Introducing your hosts, Jeff and Henry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Badminton Podcast, the podcast by badminton players, for badminton players, fans, officials, and everyone out there who loves badminton, because that's what we do. We love badminton, and that's why we're doing this. My name's Jeff. And I'm Henry. And we're the co-founders of Volant. We're proudly providing the world with the world's most versatile badminton apparel. Like I said, we're here because we love badminton and we want to build our badminton community by introducing you to and learning from guests from all walks of life, whether they're professional badminton players, former professional badminton players, social players, and all of the like, because we do believe that everyone has something to offer and we just really want to make a group of people and a community that really loves badminton and shares all of our ideas with each other. So I'm really excited to introduce our next guest. Sorry, I won't be doing it, but Henry will be doing it. And we're really lucky to have him on. So I'm really hope that you are looking forward to this episode. Thanks, Jeff. So our guest today has a CV that if properly delivered would span most of this podcast. So instead, we'll keep it simple and hope that we can do him some form of justice. He was a former world number six badminton player, winning European and Commonwealth Games medals. In Ireland, he oversaw the badminton organization's transformation from one of insolvency to the leading small to medium national sports governing body as the CEO or chief executive officer for four years. He championed revenue growth, increased participation rates, and the development of a new badminton center during his term. Prior to this, he was a digital specialist for gravity part of the K3 group, where he project managed large integrated information and communication technologies and advised on e-commerce, digital marketing and social media strategy. So where is he now? He is the current Chief Executive Officer at Squash Australia and continues his involvement at high levels through the High Performance Commission at Badminton Europe and Institute of Directors. He's also the Chair of Performance of Badminton Europe and oversees their World Training Centre in Denmark. I said, there's different structures and different ways of doing things. I don't think it's not black or white. I think different things can work. But the key thing is people. So if you've got really good quality people implementing, it will work. If you've got a better structure, a better strategy, it'll work better. But if you've got the perfect strategy, the perfect program with the wrong person delivering it, it won't work. And being able to identify those factors and being able to reflect on that is, is pretty, it's the job of the CEO. So it's a pretty key part of, of that role. His name is Richard Vaughan. Welcome onto the podcast, Richard. 
Yeah, good morning and thanks for uh, having me. So we know that you're in Australia right now, so you have migrated. So where are you based at the moment? Yeah, so pretty much the last five years been based in Brisbane. So um, came over for the role with Swash Australia and uh, their office was uh, Brisbane-based. And we've uh, yeah been here since. So tell us what you think of Australia so far, Richard. Oh, uh, myself and family, we love Australia. I was lucky enough to be here as a player and um, lucky enough to travel all around the world. And uh, yeah, we both feel for, for the family in particular, it's uh, the best location with the, especially Brisbane, the, the weather, the, the lifestyle. But we're both able to, to do what we love in terms of work as well. So um, it's a perfect combination. Yeah, and Richard, I believe we met first maybe in 2006, I think. Yeah, around that time, yeah. I think it was around that time. You were in Australia quite a bit and then I was over in Wales as well and we were playing. And that was that, – when did you actually finish up playing professionally? Uh, 2008. My career was kind of sidetracked by uh, a couple of big hip injuries. I had a big surgery when I was 18, 19, and then I had another one in about 2005. So I was kind of on the comeback trail in that period, um, trying to build my ranking up. Because one of the pains of injuries, you know, you, you lose your world ranking. It takes a, a year to kind of build things back up again. So uh, look, uh, it's a similar for, for lots of the top players, especially in single events. That's all part of, from a system point of view, of, of managing that. I think in terms of my my day job here, the, the, the playing background and understanding is pretty valuable in, in the sport context. Yeah, I completely understand. And I know Jeff understands as well, having a hip surgery himself recently. Um, but just to take a step back a bit, I mean, we, we know you, you've been a professional player. We know you've been world number six in the past, but want to just go back a bit and just cover your badminton journey, really. So how, how did you get started? What's your story? Oh, like... Lots of players. I think I started quite young. I was generally quite good at lots of sports. Loved badminton. So it was kind of Welsh national champion at eight, under 12. But, you know, there's lots of good young talent in, in every country. And I, I guess um, it was through my family, but it's really, I think it's really important that you, you kind of love what you do. You can't be forced into any sport. So it was really preferring badminton over other sports, especially around the 15th, 16th muck. So I was European number one junior. So I had a big operation, big setback in when I was 17, 18, but I was able to come back and qualify for the Sydney Olympics within 12 months for, for Britain. We had quite a strong team at that point as well with Darren Hall and Peter Knowles. So uh, that competition was uh, was tough, but uh, really beneficial to me. And I, I kind of, I, I guess, peaked in my career around that phase the next four or five years, but then I had another big hip operation based on the first one. And um, yeah, sort of coming back after that. But, as Jeff might know, it's, it's difficult after hip operations because they um, they leave a wear and tear, especially with a high volume of training. So I, I guess in that period, in terms of coaches, I, I was lucky enough, because I was from Wales, I had to look after myself pretty much. There was no team. I was part of a British team for about two months before the Olympics only. So I had to find my own way. and I was able to work with some really good coaches. So um, it was a good Korean coach in the UK called Lee Jibok when I was 15 to say 20. Then I, I lived in and out of Denmark between 20 and 25, training at Bromby, the National Centre, with both Lin and Zhang, the Chinese coaches, and Paul Eric. But my main issue was the period of time I was actually fit against that period of time I was injured. So I was really lucky to work with some real uh, good coaches in that period. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I can really resonate and empathize with you with the hip because it's never quite the same, even though it it's meant to be better structurally and repaired. It, it, I don't know, it just feels stiff, especially on some days, especially after big training loads. Yeah, and sure. yeah, and I know Michelle Lee, who's currently competing, worked top 10 level at the moment, and she's had a similar hip operation and she had a, a tricky journey back to returning to her best form as well. So it's it's definitely a huge setback. Yeah. But yeah. I think for any, any, anybody with injuries, you know, they're all... Uh, different, but they can be uh, annoying, especially if you get them at a young age, and then you've got to have them throughout their career. So, um, it, as I said, it's it's something high performance systems need to kind of factor into the development. Yeah, and Richard, what I really admire about your story is that you didn't really have, like you said, Wales didn't really have a, a much of a national setup or centre that supported you, and you, a lot of your training was self driven. How did you? do that at such a young age to find that motivation of course it was important that you had a good coach at the time but how did you how did you do it because nowadays there's it's, it's very very difficult to get to that kind of level without having a team or support team around you and people to spar with so how did you do it it is difficult i think for me i was like the, the physical aspect of sport so you know, the one thing everybody can take care of is, is the physicality piece because you can do that away from the court. So um, I was lucky enough to have a, a, an institute of sport near me, um, very similar in Australia to the state institutes. And I was able to access that and get good support around testing and like the physical preparation piece. So it was really the, the badminton side that was, was hard work. I, I was lucky enough to have a few older good players around that um, I could kind of spar and play with. I said I, w- I was then able to find a, a good, very good Korean coach that I used to drive about three hours to for a session, and back, you know, six hours, three hours in, three hours back. Uh, and through that, I was able to develop um, plans and um, really organize my own training. So I might see the Korean coach once every two weeks. I was able to plan my own training then the two weeks and control that with, say, some of the older players that were, that were you know, for, for me at 15, 14 were, were good. It would have been Welsh international players. So same as the Australian players now, uh, national. So the top 100. It was really about me working things out for myself and being able to construct the training, which, which I did well, but you know, obviously not perfect. So it was a two-sided coin, really. So one, it was really good for my personal development to be able to do that. But B, you know, I, I probably, at 14 or 15, you only know so much. I was probably, the training was only as good as I could make it. You, you go to Denmark, for example, and you see the quality of the training there because of the extensive knowledge and culture, you know, it's really good. I think overall benefited, but um, it was uh, far from perfect. Yeah, I'm sure it really helped to have that fierce competition around as well when you're so young to help lift you. And you briefly talked about having loved the sport and I feel that that's really important for us as part of the badminton podcast. We're here because we love the sport. Is there something in particular about badminton itself that, that you really love or, or that has driven you to basically center your life around it? And obviously now through another racket sport, but you're still heavily involved in badminton as well. Is there something about badminton that you just really love? Um, I, like, I, I like all sports. Um, for my pains, I'm a big football fan. That's what kind of city. So I used to play like junior football, um, junior rugby. So I like all sports, but I think for badminton, it's probably the combination of everything. So the physicality piece, but the, the skill and the tactical elements. And, and, and probably the fact that you're kind of self-reliant on your own. I probably find team events too easy. 
you know, you're only one piece in 15 or 11. You know, I love playing them, but to a certain extent, they're too easy because there's not enough to keep me busy. I, I probably carry that across to my day job now. So the CEO, you know, you're doing six people's jobs and you have 300% volume of work, which I like. And, and if I had a role that was um, normal, should we say, I, I'd be less fulfilled. So I think it's a combination of all those factors, which which is hard to find in, in, in a sport that has, like I said, the, uh, the physicality, the technical, tactical, all in one. So, uh, yeah, I think that makes uh, Bamden a great sport. It sounds like you find peace in chaos um, <laughs> from what you from what you just said. Um, just to go back a bit, you said you used to play junior football. Just to clarify that you mean football is in soccer, right? Not not AFL. Yeah, yes, yep. right. yeah. What do you think of AFL now that you're in Australia? Oh, God, I'm, I'm relatively new. So obviously you see it in the UK once every week on casual sport or something. So, you know, it's kind of known. It looks like a great sport to play, participate in. Uh, but again, probably going back to my preference of individual sports, as an individual, I wouldn't have an, enough to do. <laughs> but it looks like a, a great sport to, to, to play and have fun. And do you barrack for anyone in the AFL? Uh, well, our, our high-performance centre is right next to we, we share our high-performance unit with squash with the Suns. Okay, sure. Um, so I have to say the Suns, but I know they're not doing They haven't done so well. So um, I've been a few of their matches. Um, they've got a great setup, really professional. So the professionalism of the AFL is um, remarkable for a domestic sport. You know, yeah, absolutely. Top notch. National sport, yeah, it would be great. Similar to GAA in, in Ireland, but uh, another level up. Um, GAA in Ireland still really amateur. So the, the, there's not the professionalism around the training and the setup, where the AFL, um, from knowing the setup and even down to the, the financial director and how they go about business, is uh, yeah, a real you know, professional business which is why they're successful. Just to go back there, Richard, what's GAA stand for? Gaelic Athletics Association. So it's uh, old, so it's, it's hurling and a mix of different sports, one of them similar to AFLs. And just a last quick question, just about the sporting part of it, Richard, are you encouraging your kids to play? Uh, I was, um, <laughs> we, we, we let them do whatever they, they want, basically. So um, both my wife and I love sports. So yeah, there's just, as broader a range. I've been on the bandwagon court a few times already. I've been to the tennis. I think they've been to about 20, 25 sports already. So really, whatever they, they enjoy playing, um, we, we both think bandwagon's great. But again, if you can do well in any sport, you've got to love doing it yourself, not be kind of forced into it, really. It's a pretty uh, key principle. So um, they're both pretty sporty in fairness. They're quite tall for their age, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm sure both of them will be involved in one sport or another. Yeah, sure. And Richard, so moving on from your professional career and all the sports that you love and moving into basically when you've, you stopped playing professionally after, after 2008. Um, so uh -huh. how long was it after that? Did you start at badminton Island and start to turn those things around there? Because actually a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to Sam McGee and he's, he'll be another episode so he'll be another guest on the podcast. And he was saying that you put in some really great things in Badminton Iron, lots of changes. It didn't make everyone happy there. Um, and that's what happens when you make big change. Not everyone's going to be happy, but you've really helped turn the sport around. And so I'm just really curious to see how you got into Badminton Ireland and what, what you did there. Yeah. So look, um, as most things, a bit of luck and different factors. So when I, after my hip operation and, 
I've I've basically lost my funding in UK. So I wasn't funded from 2005. Then to be able to fund my badminton, I, I did a number of things. So I was obviously studying, but I had my own academy in the UK, um, junior coaching, which was quite successful. So I had a lot of European players there. I did some contract work for the World Federation. So I was at some point the Africa lead coach. So I used to go to Africa, run camps and train with them and advise them on qualifying for the Olympics, for example. Um, so I did partly Beijing, um, London, uh, Rio. And I was also did some work for Bampton Europe as well in terms of uh, coaching and development. And I also started working in uh, Gravity, which is a, a e-commerce digital marketing company. So I basically did all those things to, to generate income to be able to play and get to the tournaments, etc. With the flexibility of traveling and everything else, because the hardest thing with playing full-time is travel, the amount of time you're away. And you know that, that makes uni and everything else very hard compared to a sport, say like rowing or rugby, where you know, you're in the same place every day, local and the training's kind of around. And tennis, etc. Because of the travel, it's really hard to, to align study. Um, so yeah, it was really mixing and matching all those things. Then when I finished playing in 2008, I consolidated them down a little bit more, so stopped playing, but um, kept the, the World Federation role and working full-time for the, the digital agency. And I guess all of those skills then give me the right mix for the role at the island when that came up in 2011, I think it was. So yeah, a little bit of luck that came along. It was also very close. I was Cardiff-based, so it was Dublin's 30 minutes flight. Um, so about as close a city as, you, as you're going to get from uh, Cardiff. And yeah, it was just the, the right um, type of opportunity. Yeah. So what once you got into Badminton Island, what were the things that you started to, I guess, initiate once once you got on board? Well, when I went there, there was they were pretty much insolvent. So they, they had no staff. They'd overspent before Ireland had bombed out with the economy, which was bad in terms of there was no budget. Good in terms of there was an opportunity to kind of reset and um, start anew as such. And uh, Ireland's always had uh, a lot of um, participation. So there's always been a lot of people playing there, but it, it, until, say, Chloe and Scott Evans, they, they've never had any top players. No, They've never had a system, per se. Even though they had so many players and quite a lot of money, they, they never transferred that into actual constant success. And uh, look, in fairness to Scott, really good talented player, probably a, a one-off unique. Um, it wasn't because of the system, it was because of you know, his talent. Same with Chloe to a certain extent. And like I said, they'd always been very, very well funded the, the decade before. So that was coming to the end and there was no money. Um, but I was lucky enough to have a really good chair, professional chair, an okay board, who really looked at it like a business and wanted, and the chair wanted to bring in a, a good CEO and an operational team that were capable of running the organization and, and creating the structures longer term for the sport to succeed. So the, the board were very hands-off, basically allowed me to do a strategic review with all the stakeholders, which took about six months, um, create a new strategy. And then that strategy is really just best practice, kind of logical things. But that isn't always as easy as it sounds because you frequently find in, in sports that are um, smaller without substantial income, um, there's a lot of stakeholders getting involved. The board are really passionate, getting involved in operations, possibly don't have the skill sets for modern day, you know, digital, legal, etc. So basically, the, the chair made it easy for me to do a, a good job. And 
I do think in a lot of sports, it's quite easy to do a good job, really, because it's not very logical. You can, you can see who's doing a good job and copy them and there's best practice. But being allowed and able to do that is, is a different thing with stakeholder politics, board involvement, etc. So I, I really do think that the chair was probably key. In terms of the strategic plan, it, it was really focused around key concepts and participation, like school programs. We had to put in place a new coach education system because the old one was a little bit defunct. So we ended up piloting all the World Federation coach education um, and adopting that, and we got paid to do it as well. We piloted the shuttle time project for schools, which is a big success for BWF. In high performance, we, we centralized had a central high performance system. It's really focused on creating a culture of performance, obviously bringing in a good coach, having a good location, good support services. But previously, players were allowed to do pretty much wherever they liked, wherever they were. And that, that tends to lead to a, kind of a lifestyle, lifestyle culture. Where through no fault of the own, the players do what they want when they want. They don't really work on what they need to when they need to. And I, uh, that culture piece was probably the biggest success in the four years because um, when I left, you know, the, the players were looking after themselves quite well and, and they recognized the change. And, um, you know, there was no major issues despite quite a diverse uh, group. And the same with the staff and the coaches. They're trying to bring the same performance culture into the operational team. Um, so for example, we didn't have huge budgets, so we had to largely work with graduates and develop them over the four years. Um, so one of the interns I brought in in 2012 is now the CEO of, of Bandai. So again, I think that shows a good, a development of, of him personally. Um, obviously he's worked really hard and so good skills, but there, there are a number there. Uh, Dan McGee is uh, the performance director now that started in 2011 with me. So the same high performance and the operational team. Developing that uh, that performance culture piece was was probably the biggest success, and that allowed players like Nat Moyen to come to come through. I, I worked with Nat when he was twelve. He was an, you know obviously a really good talent, but as a, there's so many good talents around, the key thing is to have a system in place and a culture in place that allows them to maximize themselves. And I think we've done that. We did that really well in uh, Nile. Yeah, sure. And everything here sounds like it's super important from building grassroots to the schools and then looking at the national players and the national system as well. How long did this take to implement? Like how long was the process before you could step back and say, hey, look, we've really made a good change here and things are looking on the up? Yeah, as I said, Ireland was a bit unique because there were a lot of people playing. It was just totally fragmented and there was no structure. We were lucky to have a product that we use from the BWF uh, and that's why we use it because uh, it would have taken another year to develop the program otherwise. So it probably took about one year to bring the system in, the second year to train up tutors, coaches, teachers. So by year three we were seeing some really good results which have continued through to date. Like I said, we had a network of clubs for those players to go to. Um, so the participation levels in Ireland, I think the second or third highest in Europe per capita. Oh, really? So I think the highest is wow. Iceland or something, but Ireland was, was the third. So again, quite a big participation base, but we, we increased it through that period. And I think it's still pretty strong to the day. And, and the good or bad thing about that participation base is it's very social as well, which is which I think is good. It's not just high performance. It's, it's you know a very strong club focus and structure. And, and again, the good thing was my chair, who was very good, was a real social level player. 
um, didn't really have any interest in high performance, and he wanted to create the structures in place for sustainability and, and for those lower level players. So we brought in new competitions. We brought in a new grading system, um, new national competitions for those lower grades and for those lower clubs. So instead of being a, a triangle structure in terms of competitions or um, the level, it's really more yeah, rectangular and, and, and there's something you know throughout. So we did a lot in high performance, but we, we really put on a, a lot of competitions or focus on the lower, medium level players, which I, I guess who are your, your future administrators, your future coaches. And that was a, a big focus for, for him, which I guess counterbalanced my more high performance background. And in the end, um, created a really nice system. Yeah, it's great how you engage the sort of the lower level players, but that social piece as well, because I guess that's how we're going to build the sport as well. We can't just focus on those high performance professional athletes. In order for us to grow the sport, we need to be engaging all players at all levels if possible. And I guess it's fantastic to see what you've contributed and what you've done for Badminton Island. And if you were to look back, um, is there anything in particular that you've learned um, from that experience that you could impart as wisdom to us and our audience? Oh, look, I think it's just reinforcing the, the importance of that, um, that, that culture piece. Probably starts with the, the board. Obviously filters down into policies and the, and the staff and the high performance team and, and everything you do, really. Uh, I think that is pretty, pretty key. It's an easy thing to say, but it does um, you know, resonate then into this, the strategy that you have and, and all different areas that you work. I think we did that really well. Then looking back, there's not much I really changed with Ireland. It was just probably one or two staff I would have liked to have kept or got, um, but we just didn't have the budget at the time, which is, you know, we, we kind of increased the budget about 10 to 15% year on year. So there was, there was reasons for that. Um, so coming into Australia, really just, it's reconfirming the, the, the different pieces that, that worked and, and trying to, in my current role, transfer them across, across the squash line. Yeah, Richard, like you said before, I think a lot of the things that you've talked about are, look, they're, they're common sense and you think that, yeah, they're the right things to do. And with the culture piece, yes, it's easy to say, but all of them, they're just not that easy to implement and get everyone on board. And I know that you said the board in Badminton Island was quite supportive of change and doing these things. Um, but what do you find is the biggest roadblock for countries like Australia or New Zealand or the less developed um, badminton nations, what do you feel is the biggest roadblock in them upgrading their systems and increasing participation and making badminton the biggest sport in their respective countries? Yeah, look, I think there's, there's two factors probably. Uh, as I said, the systems piece uh, and best practice, I think it's relatively easy, as in you can see what happens around the world, you can copy, et cetera, et cetera. So Operationally, it's, it's really the delivery of the strategy in the piece. So if you go back to Ireland, we had the high performance center, you know, on paper, everything was great. But we also brought in kind of a world-class coach. And then we also brought in world-class support services. And then we had a man managing process around that, which we knew was weak. And in my position, I was able to help make sure that that was world-class. If we brought in an average coach with average support people and we'd left a more junior manager, manager system, it wouldn't have worked. So in high performance or in the rest of the business, subconsciously, people know when something's a quality product and when it's not. So it's really making sure that you have real quality in each of those areas. And if it isn't, you need to know it isn't. And then 
create uh, something to mitigate around that. Um, obviously, when you don't have huge budgets, there's always something that isn't perfect, but you need to know it's not perfect, it's not pretend it is, and um, kind of mitigate around that. I think the other piece then, again, is um, the board empowering the operational team to deliver. Um, if you've got a board constantly interfering, then the operational team can't deliver. If they're constantly interfering, they're either not doing their director roles properly, or they have no confidence in the operational team. So either way, something needs to change there. So they're probably the, the two biggest things. So the directors undertaking their roles properly and really the quality implementation of, of the strategic plan and programs. I said, there's different structures and different ways of doing things. So I don't think it's not black or white. I think different things can work. But the key thing is people. So if you've got really good quality people implementing, it will work. If you've got a better structure, a better strategy, it'll work better. But if you've got the perfect strategy, the perfect program with the wrong person delivering it, it won't work. And being able to identify those factors and being able to reflect on that is, is pretty, it's the job of the CEO. So, you know, it's a pretty key part of, of that role. That's great, Richard. So now that, you know, you've contributed so much to Babington Island, you've managed to create that culture, you've managed to put the right people in the right places. Why squash Australia? How come, how come you suddenly jumped from, from badminton, something you love, something you, you know, you have such a rich history with, how come you came to Australia and, and joined squash Australia as the CEO? Yeah, so I guess when I was at the island, I did a bit of consultancy work for a few agencies. So one of those was putting in place a badminton system in Qatar. So basically, that agency followed up with me uh, when the, the squash role became available in Australia. Um, I'd done the island role for four years by then. And after three or four years, I was probably looking at taking another, another step. So uh, obviously, my wife and I already thought Australia was a lovely place. And uh, Squash was a, a bigger budget, um, you know, obviously a bigger country, a big challenge. You know, squash outside the Olympics, etc., um, declining, and Australia is declining in terms of level as well um, compared to you know 20, 30 years ago when they had so many world champions. So it was always going to be a, a challenging role. As I said, I, I like challenges, so uh, we we decided to um, yeah have have the change of environment, and yeah, we, I said we've loved uh, being here since. Yeah, sure. And do you find that the challenges in Squash Australia are similar to the ones that you faced at Badminton Island? Yeah, they're, they're pretty much all the same. Um, they've got the added complication of not being in the Olympics, which which creates. So I think squash funding as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything in squash is harder than badminton. Though, so if you make an average grant application, you need to get that extra ten or twenty percent over because you're not in the Olympics. Because the Olympics, are you in the Olympics or do you fit the brand alignment of us with Olympic sports um, is on every grant application, everything from infrastructure to participation, obviously high performance. So you've got to be able to create a more compelling uh, case. And for any sport that's in the Olympics, it kind of shows the decline of sports probably over the 30 years shows the importance of the Olympics um, and why sports need to adapt and change to make sure they, they stay in the Olympics. But I said, I think we, we've, built on top of Ireland and what we learned there and um, developed a really nice system. So our budgets increased from about 1.4 to 3.6 million in the three or four years. Um, staff's gone from about two to 17. Uh, opened the National Centre on the Gold Coast last year. We topped the medal table at Gold Coast 18. We won eight World Championship medals last year. But despite all of that, there's, there's lots of challenges. So it's, it's, it's a little bit like swimming upstream. Awesome. You can do really, really well. But 
the moment you don't, you, you know, you can go twice as far back quite quick. Where um, Olympic sports aren't quite like that. So working in squash kind of makes you realize that, I guess, and, and the the challenges of in and out of the kind of the Olympic stream. And obviously, you've got commercial sports then to the side. But um, yeah, so it's, it's been a good uh, learning experience as well. And so, would you say your vision for squash Australia is to try and get squash into the Olympics? Well, yeah, we've definitely been one of the biggest supporters of that. So unfortunately, last year they've missed out on uh, Paris um, 24. I look, the, it, it's hard for squash and fairness because I, I think it's a great sport and probably, you know, there's a number of sports that are more suspect in the Olympics already. I won't name them, um, but they involve horses. But, you know, it, it's built on historic factors and now it's a, it's a commercial entity. And unfortunately for squash, a lot of the participants generally are from the same base of people that play tennis, uh, badminton, athletics. They're from sports. And the Olympics aren't really interested in sports now. They want new audiences. They've, they've already captured the sport audience, and now they want the entertainment audience. So that's why uh, breakdancing was added. You know, esports will come in at some point. They're all bringing new audiences. So as, unfortunately for squash, I think as a sport, it's got very little chance of coming in unless something comes out. I don't see that happening. So again, it's, it's a, a good warning for the, the smaller Olympic sports, of the, the, the benefit and the, um, the podium that the, the Olympics provides them. Yeah, absolutely. I've never thought of it that way. And I guess we've always been privileged with badminton that it is an Olympic sport. And I, I guess funding is always an issue for us. But then on the flip side, having that perspective and seeing what squash has to do with. Now, is there, is there any vendetta between, say, squash players or the squash staff or people in squash compared to like, do they have any vendettas against say badminton or table tennis or those, those kind of sports and think, why aren't we in there in? Well, I think um, as, as, a, as a team, we, within squash Australia as a team, players and coaches and the operational team, we understand the environment. So, you know, again, we're kind of open to communication around that. And we just know we need to be better. Probably within the stakeholders in the sport, they will be. And um, again, it's quite a complicated mix of reasons. So in fairness to a lot of the end players, they probably don't understand all of those complexities. And some of these things go back 30 years, the reason why and why not. So yeah, it's very hard for the, the end users to understand. I think anybody can understand that in any sport. Some of these reasons on the surface are crazy, but history, backstories and um, commercial reasons why yeah and given your success in badminton island i do hope that you are able to implement a similar story for squash australia here as well now i guess moving on from squash and back into badminton this is the badminton podcast after all as an australian now what similarities and differences do you see with badminton in ireland versus australia and even in wales well i think in, in all those countries it's a, a more minority sport I think Australia, as in, I don't know badminton in Australia that well. I've just been too too busy with family and squash role. Plus, with my European uh, kind of role, I've, I've tried to separate it a little bit so it's not a conflict. But there seems to be a huge potential in Australia with different demographics, like Ireland, really. It is quite similar, I think. Except I'm not too sure how great those structures are throughout and at the lower levels in particular. I think there's quite a lot of similarities to Ireland in, in, in that context. Wales um, didn't really have so many people playing. Ireland had a lot more potential. Um, so Wales was similar, but even less, <clears throat> even harder as such. 
So the environment similar. It's obviously a much bigger country, which creates complications. But so you've got to have programs in place around that, and that's where the culture piece becomes so important. But it's really going back to that good governance of a good board with the right skill sets, governing and staying out of operations, building a good operational team that understand the sport and make quality decisions and have the right strategy. You know, you can pretty much apply that anywhere and it, it works well. So, yeah, I think quite a lot of similarity actually between Australia and um, Ireland in that context. Sure thing, Richard. Now, moving on just from the sport part of it, but more your career and your role as a CEO. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there and a lot of my friends actually who say, look, one day I want to be a CEO of a company. One day I want to be CEO of something because there's a lot of prestige and there's lots of authority and status symbol recognition. If you are a CEO, what's it really like though? Is there something that, um, is there a myth that you can bust or something that you can tell about being a CEO to the audience that maybe thinking, Hey, I want to be a CEO CEO one day. Oh, look, it's, Yeah, it's kind of a mix of all of that. And to be honest, every CEO role is a bit different depending on the scale of the sport. And, and as I said, it's important to have a good chair and a good board because you know that makes the role totally different. So it's hard; it's very hard to compare one CEO role with another. Um, but I think generically, there's, there's substantial high volume pieces of work. There's more and more need to have good uh, soft skills, so people skills, a lot of politics in, in any of the roles. And I think you have to have a passion for the sport in particular, because without that, it's very hard. With the hours and the politics to really have the sight on that end to envision and strategy. Obviously, you, you need the uh, background knowledge and, and uh, education, but I, I think there are smaller factors. It's, it's that um, passion, drive, ability, have a, quite a substantial work and deal with the, the politics are all, all, uh, all key. Um, and obviously having an understanding family around you to be able to do that because it's, it's not a normal role. Um, my wife's a consultant doctor. She's in hospital seven to six. But then when she's home, there's nothing. Works extremely hard between seven and six. We're, we're CEO and uh, a bit like sport coach roles as well. You know, they can be 24-7 with stuff happening every night, weekends, holidays, Christmas Day. And it's being able to manage that because that will happen. But you've got to be able to, to manage that. And again, that's where the, the, a good chair and the board would really help. And as I said, every CEO role is different depending on those, uh, those factors. Yeah. And Richard, I know you, just before you talked about background knowledge, in your experience as a CEO of a sports, what's your educational background and what would you suggest to someone who wants to get into this kind of position as to the knowledge or the education they should be looking at? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I think that's always changing and it's getting expectations again harder and harder all the time so you know, CEO roles the level of capability in CEO roles every 10 years has jumped significantly if you, if you look around a role 10 years ago to today um, international and and national so for me I said I was, I was really lucky to get injured all the time so when I was injured I studied I did um, undergraduate and so I did all my high school education and I did international economics and politics then in that period around the 2006 and 8, I needed to get a scholarship. So I did a master's in sport development education. Then the year after, I did my an MBA business. And then, and then since then, I've done um, leadership courses at Melbourne Business School and um, recently with the Australian Institute of Company Directors, which is a really, really good uh, week course. So I, I think the education knowledge piece is a prerequisite. Everybody has to have that. 
And it's a bit of a, a constant need to keep upskilled on, on best practice, especially around the governance of finance and, and direct responsibility pieces. And as I said, it is a pre prerequisite that I think you have to have in a CEO role now, and the standards are a lot higher now than 10 years ago. Yeah. And as an MBA graduate, I mean, do you feel that uh, with the current educational landscape and work landscape that, you know, a CEO, as a CEO, you, you require something like an MBA or is, is the skills that you learn within a business or within, within whatever company or experiences, life experiences you have can be enough for that? Uh, I think it's good to have. Um, if you did an MBA, could you be a CEO? No. You know, it's, um, it's only one small part, but it, it gives you a nice core understanding of the business from legal, marketing, finance, um, all structure, strategy. So it, it just ticks a number of core boxes, best practice. So if being a good CEO is made up of 100 things, it's a nice solid 20 things. So if you didn't have those or sound knowledge across those, you possibly wouldn't be as an effective CEO without business life experiences that ticked all those boxes somewhere else. Um, so for me, obviously I came with more of a, a sporting background, education background. So the, those core pieces were, were, were important for me. But what I've been able to do as CEO with just on, on the MBA, no, no there's, there's so many more things as well, but they give me a really good start. So I did like a, up to a level of a master's in finance through the course and, and um, those kind of core basics were uh, really good base knowledge information for, for me and, and probably a prerequisite for everybody in that role. Yeah, sure. And Richard, you probably say that everything so far has been really important to your success and your knowledge at the moment. But if you were going to say maybe two or three of the, of the most important things that you feel were for you right now, so in terms of education, what would they be the MBA? What else would they be? Oh, look, I think if you ask me two or three overall, I'd, I'd probably say being an Olympic athlete and, and everything associated with that is uh, pretty irreplaceable. <clears throat> so, you know, I was lucky enough to work with uh, some of the world's best coaches, some of the world's best players, you know, gold medalists at the Olympics, experienced the ups and downs of, of playing, winning, um, the tactical piece, dealing with injuries, working in high-performance systems. So all of that gives you a subconscious really good subconscious understanding of what's good and what's not. Um, so what does that mean? In terms of badminton, if I'm looking to hire coaches or PDs, I can pretty much work out straight away if somebody's good or not. Um, subconsciously, obviously in my head, I put together from all my own experiences and discussions and there's a, a logic for that. But even going back to the European Training Center, you know, I think that's one of the strengths I, I kind of bring. Uh, I'm able to put in all the right things. Um, we, we don't make mistakes so i think that badminton experience is pretty irresponsible because you, you can't buy that you know you, you, if you're a player in the danish national system working with two chinese coaches and paul eric every day you know day in day out you, you kind of get inside knowledge where if you go there as an external coach to shadow you know you, you get 10 percent people aren't as open so um i think fundamentally that that player olympic experience is valuable and i think that's why high performance athletes if they've got their head screwed on, so to speak, are um, are really employable because they have that uh, background with that, the motivation, the discipline, um, and everything that, that comes with that. And I know at Squash, we were a program where we really try to help retiring athletes in terms of getting that background education, mentoring, and that transition, because that's generally not in place anywhere. 
because they have so many good life skills, you know, they are missing different development blocks because they've been in sport for so long. So we, we, we try to help with that transition. And even within our organization, we've employed a number of players retiring or injured. Uh, and, and it's been nice to see one of those was Zach Alexander, who then got over his injury and went back for the Commonwealth Games and won a gold medal. So, yeah, I think that's pretty essential. And as I said, the, the NBA and these different blocks are, are prerequisites. You have to have them. But the elite kind of Olympic performance piece is something you, you, know, you, can't, you can't buy. And I know a lot of parents are concerned about their children playing badminton and you know, not being a success and the importance of studying and everything else. And logically, yeah, it makes sense. But like I said, you get so much more from the, the journey of being a, an athlete all around in terms of your human skills and your development skills. You can always go back or you can always do the education piece alongside if you're disciplined. Um, I've seen so many people stop playing the study, have a good degree, and then you know, have pretty average jobs after where you know you see a lot of people in sport. I think Demox great, you know, Anders Boson, Rasmus Hill, they're all doctors. My wife used to play, she's a doctor. You know, there's so many good case studies as yourself, Jeff, in, in Australia. So there should be a lot more focus on those success stories because I think being a success as an athlete isn't really winning a gold medal or an event. You know, it's about success as a person longer term and, and winning a gold medal, winning uh, Olympic Games is just part of that. So it's keeping that balanced approach and, and that's something we try to bring into our high performance program. So we try to encourage all the athletes to study, you know, the training full time from 18. Before they were literally told they shouldn't study and they have to play full time. Uh, even in the British system now in Bamden, they're told that. Um, where we really think that they, they should study and, and they should have something around their uh, um, squash as well. Yeah, I completely agree that the high performance culture and competitive environment of you know um, professional athletes can really translate into uh, the professional life of these people as well. I want to ask you one more thing, Richard, and it's a question that I, that I really like listening to on, on another podcast that I really like. Um, and the question is how much of your success do you attribute to skill and how much do you attribute to luck? It depends how you define skill really. So I think the other, there's, there's a couple of factors there as well. And that's the kind of the, the, the mental side and the, um, we still have this discussion in the UK quite a lot with my, one of my old coaches. Because um, you see so many talented young players, so the discussion is normally around what, what talent is. And, you know, talent's the ability to have skill, but be able to focus that over a long period of time to get, you know, to get positive outcomes. So I think everybody that plays band and do a good level has a level of skill. Um, some are exceptional, some are learned. So, you know, you can learn, if you've got a good coach, you can probably learn 30, 40%. And I've seen some really good players that was all learned skills. Um, but then you need to have a good coach and a good system. And if you take somebody like a Nat Leon in Ireland, you know, he's very talented at 12. He was exceptional. So I was lucky enough to work with him. And he's kind of learned some new skills, but that's really natural skill. And he's been able to apply it for longer term success. And look, there's always elements of, of luck, per se, in terms of, if you look back to Nat's case, he was lucky, I was CEO. He was lucky we brought in a world-class coach um, and developed a culture around him that allowed us to get extra funding, that allowed us to develop him. Um, so all of those factors are in. But again, I wouldn't really see that's luck. Um, it's important that players 
control their own careers and, and, and find their own path. So if Nath hadn't have had this there, you know, he would, it would have been harder, but he would have had to have gone and find a good coach and, and found avenues for funding, um, which makes it harder. But there's definitely an element of some players have more skill than others. But I think you can balance that out in terms of talent by working harder and, and applying those um, skills. And obviously, if you get somebody that does everything, like a, like a Peter Gabe before, um, some of the top Chinese players, then um, they're, they're pretty exceptional. Yeah, I guess that's how we've, we've looked at it in the past. Yeah, fantastic, Richard. And so just wrapping up here, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on to the podcast because I think we've really dug into some things that are really important from a fundamental level as to how sporting bodies can work and how they can be better. And then just that piece at the end when you talked about, say, your life experience being an athlete and then going and having a career outside of, of sport and then you're saying about parents being worried about their children only playing sport initially. And I can't, like, it resonates so deeply with me and I can't encourage that more in that, yes, um, being an athlete is, it's hard work and you might not get the gold medal. You might not get the Olympic Games or the Commonwealth Games or whatever games you're looking for, but the road and the journey that you take to actually be the athlete and compete and train and do all those things, it really does grow you as a person as well as the travel overseas and just learning about yourself. And there's nothing personally that I would give away to to replace that because I think that's really shaped the person I am today. So I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I just add, I just add there as well. I think that's where that culture piece, well, from what I've seen, that's where that culture piece is important. If parents can see there's a quality system with quality people and there's a positive culture, then I think they're more confident around the development of their children. If they don't see that culture and they, you know, they don't see a world-class coach, they see poor behavior, poor culture, then they're probably understandably less confident in uh, committing the, the, the children's time in that space. So I think that, that's where that, that culture piece, that quality piece is, is pretty essential around that sport and that high performance. Yeah, great. Well, that's a great point to finish off of as well. So this brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you to our audience. Thank you to Richard who's come onto our podcast. We're very grateful to have him on. We thank everyone, all the support that they've given us so far. We will continue to push you to grow as a player and a person with special guests like Richard. So make sure that you keep sharing your love of the sport with everyone so that we can continue to show the world how incredible badminton is. And if you find benefit from this podcast, make sure you do share it with your friends, family, and all the badminton community because we really want to grow together as a group and as a big badminton family. If you want to get into contact with us, so myself, Jeff, or Henry at Volant, where all the badminton podcast, you can connect with us via social media. So that's Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Our handle is Volantware, V-O-L-A-N-T-W-E-A-R. We also just have a separate Instagram for our podcast, which is just the badminton podcast, no spaces. And finally, our website is www.volantware.com and you can connect with us on there as well. And make sure you check out our clothes too. And our blog and our YouTube videos and everything because we're here because we really are trying to create something great for the Bamins community. Um, resources wise and also just the sense of belonging and being part of yeah like i said our bands and family all right we'll see you at the next episode thanks guys bye thanks richard thanks richard thanks this podcast was brought to you by volantware 
the most versatile badminton apparel you'll ever own. 